Okay, friends, Boker Tov, great to see you all. We're going to start with a little poll. We're going to start with a little poll we have um, to uh, see what folks think about a question relevant to our session today. So did the poll pop up for you yet? Great. Is life inherently meaningful or life is not inherently meaningful, but we can make our own meaning of it? Okay, so make a choice there real quick. One or the other. And um, in just a few seconds, we'll get our results. Okay, AJ, do we have results yet? Life is inherently meaningful, 80%. Life is not inherently meaningful, but we can make our own meaning of it, 20%. Okay, very nice, very interesting. Um, Oh, and Avi writes over there, life is inherently meaningful because of the choice we have to make it so. <laughs> that, that's, uh, that, that's a nice uh, interpretation there. Okay, good. Okay, very interesting. Okay, so we will come back to this idea very soon. Um, and let's jump in. So we are up to Malacha 28, Ma'abed. Ma'abed, salting or tanning. So in our previous malacha, we discussed the utility of animal hides in the tabernacle. But now that we have the hides, what exactly do we do with them? The malacha of Mabed is about that process. Once the skin has been removed from the animal, the hides must be preserved through salting to remove moisture to be transformed into leather by stretching the hides to flatten them and tanning. On a Torah level, the prohibition of this activity on Shabbat doesn't apply to processes involved in the preservation of food. For example, an act such as pickling would only be rabbinically prescribed, not disallowed on a Torah basis. But on a practical level related to the malacha, we might be concerned with an act like oiling a leather shoe. So we should ask, when an object is transformed, up until what point is it still the original product, as opposed to 
something new. At what point does a cake become a cake rather than a mixture of its ingredients? At what point does a meeting of sperm and egg become a fetus? At what point does a child become an adult? At what point do individuals working together become a team? At what point does a hide become leather? In identity studies, we might consider change from three different approaches using the perspective of a tree. First, perdurantism. There are a series of stages to the life of a tree based on the temporal changing of its parts. Or secondly, and endurantism. The tree is always the same and is whole throughout its life. Even as a tree loses leaves or the like, it still remains a tree. Or third, muriological essentialism. The parts are essential to the whole, and as the parts change, the whole changes. So when a tree loses its leaves, it is no longer the same tree. The parts change, and now the whole is something fundamentally different also. In considering our own life journeys, we might wonder, am I as an 80-year-old the same person as when I was 40, or when I was 20, or when I was five? Sure, I changed a lot, but those iterations of myself were still me, some might argue. But were those or will those versions of myself be fundamentally different so that only in the loosest sense can I say they were all me? In issues of identity, we often return to, quote unquote, the first philosophy, that of metaphysics. There are three primary branches to metaphysics. One, ontology which means the study of existence and being and change that may emerge in states of being. Second, universal science, the study of reasoning and logic, the first principles. And third, natural theology, the, stu the study of God and creation. So here too, we can ask, when does nothing become something? Or vice versa, when does something become nothing? What does it mean for something or someone to exist in the first place? What does it fundamentally mean for someone or for God to exist? And from a zoomed out perspective of history, what does it mean for something or someone to exist temporally, but not eternally? The Sefer Yetzirah, one of the earliest works of Kabbalah, says that there are three parts to the creation of the world. First, space. Oh, which he, he calls, or they call, olam, olam, world, the, the, the dimension of space. Secondly, time, or what they call shana, year. And thirdly, soul, or what they call nefesh. While space can be tangible, time and soul are completely intangible. And time is a reality, or maybe a fiction, that can be studied scientifically while the soul can be the object of consideration, but is neither tangible nor observable. Thus, while we might perceive the created world, creation itself is ethereal and elusive. So too, revelation happens through these three channels, a space for revelation, a unique time of revelation, and a spiritual dimension of revelation. When a human being is created, is this something physical or metaphysical? Yes, there is a body, but also the boundaries of time help to define the person's existence. And the person's existence has a spiritual dimension as well. What does it mean for this human to exist at all? 
are, are philosophical problems real? Ludwig Wittgenstein believed that all philosophical problems were linguistic puzzles and could be solved with grammar. Karl Popper, on the other hand, believed that philosophical problems were real problems to solve, not just linguistic puzzles. They had a fierce disagreement, but they only came together face to face one time. It was such an intense and disputed encounter, albeit lasting only 10 minutes, that a whole book was written about it, Wittgenstein's Poker, written by David Edmonds and John, uh, John Ednow, to describe the various counts of this October 25th, 1946 brief encounter, where Br Bertrand Russell was all, also present. We can begin to understand how significant this disagreement can be when we consider theodicy. Is the problem of divine justice to be resolved through logic? solved through logic or just explained through language? We can ask a similar question about a president. When is a citizen the, pre when is a citizen the president of the United States? When they win the election? When the election is officially certified as valid? After an inauguration? After the people accept an inauguration? Is quote unquote a president an ontological status? or merely a societal agreement. Thomas Hobbes, who lived in 17th century England, was a staunch monarchist who defended King Charles I. During the English Civil War, however, he fled to France where he authored his most important and famous work, The Leviathan. Hobbes was pessimistic about human nature and believed that people were primarily self-interested. He argued that the goal of government, the goal of government is to respond to that fear and self-interest of individuals. For Hobbes, governments could ultimately only be sustained if they maintain order, reducing the fear of war, war for the people, and by instilling fear in the people that there will be punishment if there is disorder. When the government grants rights, the people in turn grant power to the government. This mutual interaction maintains a societal contract. Otherwise, there is revolution. But nothing ever remains the same. Nothing ever remains the same. Just as people are growing, the zeitgeist is evolving and society is changing. Some are pushing progress. Some are pushing conservation. Some have no clue that anything at all is going on. How are people like a president or a king or a citizen without rank or title to stay on top of the changing times rather than just be stuck in ideology? Prochaska and Nocross in 2001 identified six stages of change. First, pre-contemplation, <laughs> the state where someone is not aware that there's a problem at all. Everything is just fine. Secondly, contemplation. One now evolves to contemplating. Oh, there is a problem. I'm not yet committed to change, but I'm aware there's a problem. It's kind of like someone has cardiac disease. They're not aware. Okay. I'm not ready to go do an intervention. I don't want a medical intervention, but I'm aware now that the doctor told me there's a problem or I just had a heart attack. So I'm aware something's not working. Third, preparation. I'm intending to change my diet, or I need a surgery, or I need to uh, address certain stress levels. Four, action, working on the change. 
I don't just intend to change. I didn't just make a New Year's resolution. I'm willing to work to actually create change. I don't just say, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna make that mistake again. I actually put a procedure in place in the workplace that I'm actually working on addressing a change of a problem that I, I, I continue to create. Fifth, fifth in change is maintenance. I don't just work on change. I work to prevent a relapse. I don't just have a great first week of 2021. I put systems in place to prevent me falling back into old behavioral patterns. Lastly, termination. The change process is complete where one is not likely to relapse. One has truly transformed. This is true on an individual level, a team's level, a societal level, a global cosmic level. Perhaps the most important factor in working for change is to believe it's possible. Carol Dweck of 2006 identifies two different orientations towards change, a fixed mindset and a growth mindset. For parents and for teachers, more important than helping a child become good at something is helping them realize that it is their effort that enables their growth, right? Rather than telling a child or a student, you are really good at that because that's going to boost their confidence. We, we help them understand that it was their effort that helped them to be good at that. Right? And, when, and when a child or student is failing to understand that they're not bad at that, it was their lack of effort that, made that, 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 made, that moved them towards not being good at that. This is opposed to a talent-based approach. People are naturally talented and people are naturally not talented at things as opposed to an effort approach. Of course, talent is real, but talent is shaped by effort. Just like the nature of nurture, it is never a binary. It is always in relationship to each other. The, Ma'abade, Ma'abade, the process of salting is therefore about transforming an object. Thinking about it gives us the opportunity to reflect on how we change. One suggestion from the rabbis related to salt is that we might embrace a, mod a mode of change embodied in asceticism. Here's what it says in Pirkei Avot 6.4. This is the way of Torah, eat bread with salt, drink water in small measure, sleep on the ground, live a life of deprivation, but toil in Torah. If you do this, you are praiseworthy and all is well with you. You are praiseworthy in this world and all is well with you in the world to come. Rashi's commentary on this Mishnah argues, however, that this perspective is not anti-wealth. He writes, this Mishnah is not telling a wealthy person to live a life of deprivation in order to learn Torah, but rather it should read like this. Even if a person only has bread and salt to eat, nor a pillow or blanket to sleep with, but lies on the floor, nevertheless, do not desist from learning Torah, for in the end they will learn in wealth, which might be understood as, as um, spiritual wealth. And so um, we, we like to say that Judaism is predominantly not ascetic. We don't promote suffering. We don't, we don't, we're not anti-wealth. And yet um, there are sources like this Pirkei Avot, which do emphasize that we should be focused on the spiritual values more than the material values. Indeed, many have pointed to the greatest plague of modern American Judaism is that we are plagued with materialism rather than spirituality. And that's why, that's why assimilation is so high. Uh, because people are simply drawn towards more money, more pleasure, more enjoyment, rather than spiritual values. Okay, we, tell me if you agree with that assessment or not, as one of the many problems, as opposed to blaming the institutions. Oh, 
the synagogues are out of touch, the schools are failing, as opposed to just blaming the systems. Of course, there is some blame there that the, that the problem is actually on the broader culture and that people are not attracted to learning, to thinking, to prayer towards spiritual growth. Any case, going off Rashi here, here wealth is not the goal, but rather a means for enablement of noble pursuits. Salt is either necessary or at least appropriate for one who is seeking growth. One can live and learn modestly, yet still achieve great things. But once one has wealth or status, will they remember the floor and the salt? When one has been transformed, is their past even recognizable anymore? Is their early stage of life retrievable? Or have they truly lost that past self of suffering, now conf confounded with their new pursuits of pleasure and comfort and status? A bloody, smelly part of an animal, of a killed animal, becomes a beautiful decoration in a sacred place. Does this part of the Mishkan in any way resemble its origins? How can we evolve and grow, yet remember that from dust we came into dust we return? Any noble stature in this world can be understood to be a facade. We are mortal and we will be forgotten. We can salt the hide all we want. We can dress ourselves in fancy clothes and drive fancy cars and return to fancy homes, but in the end, we are mere flesh and bones. Humility is not only a crucial character trait, it may actually be the root trait for all others. Rabbi Bachia Ibn Pakuda writes, is humility dependent upon other virtues or are all the other virtues dependent upon humility? My answer is as follows. Consequently, it is not possible for a person to serve God unless they assume all the attributes of service, namely humility and lowliness before God, and divest themselves of all the attributes of mastership, namely grandeur, honor, majesty, glory, pride, and the like. It therefore follows that all virtues and duties are dependent on humility, which is fundamental to them and a prerequisite to their attainment. For this reason, it also follows that no virtue can be predicted, excuse me, predicated uh, of someone whose heart is devoid of humility before God and contains even the slightest trace of pride or, ha or haughtiness. This is why we bow our heads in prayer to look downwards as humble servants, why we wrap to fill in to say when we wrap to fill in on our arm that we are not a slave to people but a, a servant to God. This is a form of freedom. By embracing God, we liberate ourselves from having masters who control us and rather submit to our conscience and to God rather than to human conformity. Indeed, friends, our honor is not found in our wealth, our degrees, educational degrees, or our social status of being connected to power. It is in honoring others that we find our own honor. As Benzoma famously teaches, teaches, who is honored, one who honors others. On Shabbat, we reflect on humility, not a humility that dismisses our accomplishments, breaks down our self-esteem, or dismisses our own nobility, but rather a humility that embraces where we are now, where we have come from, and where we will ultimately go. Let me say one last thing before we open up the floor for, for our conversation today. We can't talk about salt 
without talking about one of the most important stories of salt in the Torah, which maybe you were already thinking of. Genesis 19, 26. After Avraham Avinu protests God not to destroy Stom and Amorah, and Lot is fleeing with Lot's family because they were saved as Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed, and the angels warn, do not look back. Lot's wife looks back, and she, tor- she turns to Melach. She turns to Melach. She turns to salt. In fact, if you visit the Dead Sea near Mount, Mount Sodom, Mount Stone today, there is a pillar of salt that is still named Lot's wife. Lot's wife over there. And many different interpretations have been offered as to why she turned to um, salt. Maybe you have one to add in addition to the three that I'll share now. One suggestion is that in looking back, she has a secret longing for that way of life. Yes, she's fleeing, understand, understanding that that was an evil society. Nonetheless, in looking back, it is a sense of longing to return. A second interpretation is that her daughters are still there and they're because they're married to the men of Sodom and she is looking upon them and their well-being. A third is that she sinned with salt and thus she turns to salt. How did she sin with salt? When she was serving her guests, she asked the neighbors for salt because she didn't have, alerting the people in town that there were guests in their house and the people of Stone hated guests. And so that led to the killing of these guests, which was the last straw um, for God um, for destroying the city. In any case, this salting process reminds us of this um, of this uh, uh, of this uh, this story with um, with Lot's wife. So, friends, um, I wrap up here that on Shabbat we can reflect on this salting process and what it means to transform society, what it means to transform ourselves what it means to transform our identities, and when is there continuity, and when is there discontinuity. With that, I open the floor and look forward to hearing from you. <clears throat> Shalom Rav Shmuley, thank you. That was incredible. Thank you. Um, I'd like to, uh, to, t- to point out that in the parashiot that we're in, from Shmos to through B'Shalach and then on, we're in the story of the Jews in, in Egypt being enslaved and the redemption and how the entire story seems like a polemic against slavery and the method of escaping slavery is having a more, a deeper and richer spiritual life and a connection with God. And there's a very powerful quote from Cornell West that, that, re- that, I, that I really appreciate. I wanna, I wanna say, this is the quote, it says, the Hebrew scriptures is a book of an oppressed and persecuted people where God says, you are subordinated, but I make a covenant with you. All you have to do is do justly, love mercy, walk calmly with thy God, and you will have a sense of dignity that allows you to stand in the face of Pharaoh. And to me, that's the entire story of these four parshia that we're going through right now. Wow, I love that. Thank you for sharing that. And um that's, that's incredibly powerful because that is one of the main ways I understand, one of the top 10 ways I understand Jewish spiritual life is to cultivate one's inner dignity so that it is not needed from outside parties to grant it such that we can speak truth to power as one of the things we can do. We can live our conscience because we don't get our self-esteem by Facebook likes or Twitter retweets or by, again, by our wealth or status, but by our understanding that we're living our purpose. We're living our purpose. So thank you for that. And I think that this, this Parsha 
um, this week in, that, in those words of Cornel West drawing upon, I think, the prophet Micha and another prophet um, reminds us of, um, of how that social justice imperative is born from, this, from these uh, Torah portions and born from this spiritual consciousness. Excellent. Okay, great. Yeah, so thank you for that question. Also, AJ, how does the tradition of dipping the challah in salt on Shabbat re relate to this malacha? Um, good. So, um, so uh, we've, we've touched upon this in a past session. And um, this is also uh, the idea that our Shabbat table becomes the becomes the um, becomes the altar becomes the altar in the Mishkan and in the Mikdash, and that our dipping the challah in the salt um, re resembles that offering to God um, in this uh, in this salting process. And so uh, this is also a beautiful way to think about how we think of our food. Yeah, symbolic altar, exactly. I mean, uh, um, how we think of our food, not as um, merely pleasurable, not merely as survival, but as an offering, as an offering uh, to God, that we eat food, and it gives us koach, it gives us energy, and that energy is used for service of God, service in the world, that we use that strength, that sustenance for good. And that's uh, when we make a bracha, when we make a blessing on food, we're all, we make a, we make hamotzi lechem in haaretz. Um, what we're saying is, God, help me channel this food to use my energy justly. That's what yasher koach means. Yasher koach means your strength should be used for justice. Yasher koach. Your koach should be used for, to, for yashrut, right? For yashrut. Yashir. It doesn't just mean good job. It means good job. Yashir koach, your, your strength should be used for justice. Um, and that, that's what, and that, that, um, that's what we're doing over there with the bracha and that's the, the salting process, remembering that it's a korban, it's a korban. We're turning our, our body into a, into a korbanot. Okay. Over there also from AJ during Pesach, we think of salt in the water as the tears of the Hebrews as they were enslaved in Egypt. Yeah. Building on Avi's point as well. Can that metaphor be extended for Jews throughout history who have suffered through many Injustices. A beautiful, beautiful. Yes, this salt water at Pesach that reminds us of the bitter slavery um, that we taste of this salt water uh, to remember of the slavery to remind us, as AJ is saying over there beautifully, of of, uh, of the suffering of Jews throughout history, the suffering of uh, of all people, the, the suffering of animals, the suffering of all sentient beings to be to give birth to that consciousness. Um, that it gives, it reminds us of the tears, of the tears. And, um, um, and, and it's pretty amazing that how central that is to the Seder experience, right? That Seder experience, trying to awaken that consciousness in us. And I think this is another dimension of salt, that Lot's wife dies in a pillar of salt. This is tragic. Um, that, um, that this idea of suffering and poverty, that the person only has salt to eat, this idea of the tears of the oppressed representing salt, this idea of the hide, the hide that's used in the Mishkan um, is, is created from um, the salting of a dead animal, right? This idea of salt that is used to kind of cover that up in a sense. And so, yes, I love that. And, um, and this, is, this is another way to think of the salt on the challah. The challah is sweet, but and I, I, I believe I believe that Jewish rituals are always to be, not always, let's say often to be bittersweet, 
they're to, they're, they're to invoke an ambivalence. Um, for example, I mean, the most obvious example is breaking a glass at the end of a wedding. You take the most joyful experience and then you break a glass to remember suffering in the world, right? Um, we, take, um, we take joyful times and we bring some sorrow into it. We take so times of sorrow and we bring joy into it, like a shiva. A shiva can be so joyful, right? Um, in, a, in, a, in a sorrowful way that you're so sad and then people come into your home and sit with you. And what is more joyful than solidarity um, of people sitting with you? And so too, you take the sweet challah, you take the sweet challah and you dip it in the salt a little bit to remind us that the sweetness is tempered by uh, a reminder of, um, uh, of that. And for me, what I like to think of is, is workers, you know? We say hamotzi lechem in aretz. The bread came from the earth. Um, and we're aware of the workers involved in producing that bread. And we think of the labor oppression that's involved uh, as well. And so um, this is always uh, the ambivalence that's involved in Jewish life. And that's why many people might not be attracted to it. People want, you know, just a joyful experience or people want just a cynical experience. But those who are naturally negative are challenged to experience their joy. And those who are naturally positive are challenged away from toxic uh, positivity. Um, to also, you know, um, uh, understand that that um, uh, we have to hold the consciousness of suffering amidst our joy as well. Um, okay, let's keep going. So, yes, hi, hi. Hi. So not only the um, transformation of the skins of animals in the Bekumitash, but our actual Torah scrolls are transformed skins of animals. So, and then every time we lay in Torah, follow those words, those sacred words, it's on that animal skin. We're not actually consciously thinking of it, but we're in that every single time, all our Torah skulls. So that, that interface of those two realities of that transformed animal skin, there we are. There's something there, something very great there. I mean, I'm loving this whole exploration. Yeah, thank you for that. I mean, yeah, what a powerful reminder. Thank you for that. Because this is not just a historical truth. Um, and this is a conversation in the vegan world. Because to be kosher from a traditional perspective, there is no way around it being from an animal, right? Um, whether we're talking about the, cl the cloth of a Torah, we're talking about the cloth inside a mezuzah, this mm -hmm. needs to come from there. And we are reminded of that um, um, or um, in in tefillin, right? In um, in mm -hmm. uh, you know in the Torah scroll, I, I did a wedding for a for a vegan fellow who wouldn't have enough roof because of this. He didn't want to be called up to the Torah. He was secular and he was turned off by the Torah. I mean, he was turned off by religion in general, but turned off by the Torah. And I know people who won't work tefillin for this reason. I give an all to I give an opposite argument. I give an argument that um, um, that we are elevating. We're elevating that animal. Um, I mean, what greater elevation than to, to be used as a Torah scroll? Um, now, the way I would argue is that it should come from Nevela. It should come from Nevela. Nevela means uh, a trefa is, is, is a sick animal. A Nevela is an animal that dies a natural death. And uh, tefillin is kosher if it comes from Nevela, so it can die naturally. But we have a long way to go to get to that place. Um, but what a beautiful way it would be rather than killing an animal, let it die naturally and then and then use it. And that would indeed be kosher. In any case, um, 
yeah, how powerful to think of life and death, because I do think that the Torah is about uvacharta b'chayim, that we should choose life. And when we put on tefillin or we approach the Torah and we hold that Torah, we hug the Torah, we are realizing mortality. Um, we are we are embracing existentially the power of life and death in a way that speaks to me very deeply. When I wear a tefillin in the morning, I'm aware that I'm wearing a dead animal on me that has been transformed to a holy object. And indeed, that raises the issue, that raises profound questions about holiness and its relationship to life and death. Um, you think about a Hevra Kadisha, I mean, the burial of a dead body, of a human dead body, and the holiness of that body, which carried the soul. I mean, it's very powerful. In the Torah scroll, the, the, the black letters and the, um, think of Rabbi Akiva and the fire and the Torah scroll wrapped around him and, and the holiness of this, um, of this, of this parchment. Um, of this uh, of this scroll. So thank you for that. This reminder of this of uh, of of how that Torah scroll brings us back to the same questions. Shmuley. Hi, hi, Cheryl. Hi. Um, what about when, uh, with, with koshering meat, the salt that's rubbed into them? I mean, there's a lot of salt rubbed into the meat uh, when it's koshered and everything. What, what is that? How does that tie with what you're talking about with the salt? Is it a reminder? It is a purification. What is it? Okay. Amazing. Amazing. So, yes. So, um, so yeah, there's a lot to say about that. And um, part of the kosher process is ensuring that, um, uh, that there is, uh, that 100% of the blood is removed. And so this salting process to try to, um, um, to draw out with water and salt, uh, this process. And so, yeah, that's actually a fascinating point, Cheryl, to think about this, this kosher meat uh, process of salting and what that means for blood. This idea that, this kosher idea that we don't want to consume blood. Uh, blood left, right, right, I mean, blood, we, you know, we, we talked about quite a bit about blood uh, last time. Um, and this idea of blood being a, a life source, um, dam and dome. And si our, our silence, as Rabbi Nachman taught us, our, our silence as, as related to the blood source uh, of life. Um, and that um, that the kosher meat has to be drained of this. That's why some people who love who love meat want to, want to eat a kind of very juicy, bloody meat um, rather than this kosher type. In any case, um, yeah, this salting there is almost a uh, acknowledging the suffering the animal went through and needing to kind of reduce any trace of it, remove any trace of it, transforming this from uh, a, a life to a food source. Um, this salting, this this salting issue. That's also why in the Dead Sea, nothing is alive in there because it can't live in so much salt. That's why it's called Dead Sea, right? And so um, uh, it, that's a fascinating point, Cheryl, which I hadn't thought about in preparing this. So thank you for for flagging that. If I may be allowed a second question. Please, as much as you want. So I wonder, um, we, we spoke before about asceticism and how Jew, Jewish life is generally not ascetic. 
And I wonder if today in the modern world where uh, the, the proper response to such decadence and commodification, uh, which ultimately roots from dehumanization and the value of the dollar over the person, wouldn't, um, if the response wouldn't be a kind of asceticism in an attempt to reignite humanization and a kind of spirituality divorced from products. Avi, please forgive me. I, I, I noticed there was a question in the chat and so I glanced at it. So I missed the last part of your question. Would you mind restating it? I'm so sorry. Yeah, no problem. I wonder if since this, the, the modern world is so decadent and so full of commodification, if the, the response, which ultimately comes from dehumanization, if the response to that wouldn't be a kind of asceticism in an attempt to get back to humanizing people and, uh, you know, just uh, a higher elevated spiritual consciousness, not uh, based on, uh, on physical goods. Okay, amazing, amazing. Yeah, I love that. I love that because asceticism in its most pure form is that the lack of pleasure, the lack of material uh, gain um, is itself an end goal, right? That that itself evokes an emotional and spiritual consciousness, um, which is much a, a deeper form of, of human reality um, that can only be attained through not wanting. Think about Buddhism, this idea of detachment, this idea of not wanting. This, this idea of, 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 of reducing one's desire, this form of asceticism that by reducing desire, wanting less, needing less, one's consciousness is elevated. But you're moving us towards uh, a, a fascinating approach also, which is to say that, the, if I understand correctly, that the asceticism is not about the suffering itself. It's not about reducing the desire itself. It is about removing the transactional dynamic in human relationships, the commodification of human beings. Um, there's such hierarchies um, that uh, become exploitative um, and where we can't truly see the other because of these dimensions. And in wanting less from others, we can see the other more in not thinking of a family member of what they will do for me, right? Or thinking of people in the world of what they do for me, but seeing them as themselves. There we embrace, embrace an asceticism of wanting less physically um, because what we want is relational. Is, am I hearing you right? It's also, yeah, 100%. And on top of that, in addition, it's also very much based on Peter Singer arguments of uh, giving more to charity and, and needing, you know, figuring out what are the basic needs that I need for my own dignity and my own self, my own children. And then beyond that, not really having a justification to hold on to much more than that, but using that to help people who have far less than I do. I'm currently reading The Life You Can Save. So that's where I'm thinking, that's where I'm coming from. But yeah, uh, right. it's, uh, that, uh, but additionally, what you said on top of that as well. Yeah. You know, Avi, it, it, it's really unbelievable because people come from different, such different childhoods in relationship to, to money. You know, uh, someone said to me yesterday that they give a pass to, you know, those who in, inherited, I forgot the phrase they used, but basically in, inherited a great depression reality. Those who um, who had parents who were just all the time, we're going to lose everything at any moment, or people who were in the Holocaust or the like, who were really plagued that even when they have so much, they have this constant fear of everything going away, right? Who are, or, um, are really plagued by such fears. 
um, and or plagued by early traumas in regards to economics or their needs not being met, and 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 others who who don't have that. And I have met people who are wealthy but find it so hard to give away any any amounts of money because giving away any amount is like I've lost something. Or people who who are or wouldn't be considered wealthy but haven't their needs met but don't like to donate at all because they can't imagine giving something away. It is only a loss. So there's such a deep psychology. We, we could spend so many, so much time on the psychology of money, the psychology of one's own needs being met, the psychology of the future and the scarcity of resources. I mean, the, the, the Pope put out a great document just a few years ago around, um, around, the, around the ecological crisis and around the, uh, the issues of greed and the issues of fear of scarcity um, and the great vices that plague our society that really get at the spiritual dimensions of the ecological crisis of why we're destroying the planet because we've never addressed the psychology of needs and desires um, that that uh, um, that ultimately emerged here. And so I thank you for flagging that and and the Peter Singer point because indeed um, um, it is it is uh, it is profoundly troubling. I, I think that if I had to point to one. Jewish revolution that I would love to see. I mean, there's so many, but one of the main ones would be a Maser, a Maser, a Maser revolution. That to be a decent human being means you donate 10% of your income, right? Like the Torah says, you donate 10% of your income, minimum, minimum 10%. doesn't matter if you make $30,000 a year and you're going to donate 3000 right, of the 30000 or you make 300000 and you're going to donate 30000 Right. And, and I know there's a lot to say about that. And, and to be sure that, that the halacha it mandates a maximum of 20 percent. Um, so it does it does want to regulate that as well. But then we go to the billionaires, the, the Buffets and the, and the Gates, who are like, look, we should donate 90 percent of our wealth. Then there's the then there's the idea of, of wealth. How much wealth do I need to hold on to? Because I love my children and my grandchildren want to take care of them. Do they really need to inherit a million dollars? They need to inherit a million dollars rather than philanthropic causes. Is that it's really inconceivable that Halacha is talking about billionaires? Halacha doesn't have a conception of wealth that's beyond temporal spendable wealth. So, no doubt in my mind that if the Gemara knew about capitalism and the possibility of of a super billionaire, Elon Musk just became the 55th richest nation on earth. Then uh, it's inconceivable that the Gemara would have would have specified one fifth as the number. Like it doesn't make any. It can't be. It can't possibly be. Right. You know, and today we see uh, a, um, a Jewish billionaire passed away. Uh, um, I'm not going to say anything about him other than uh, Baruch Dayan Amet. And, um, and we see um, how much billionaires can shape, can shape global reality um, and, and shift major political calculations. Um, and so, yes, okay, lots more to say there, but let me open up the floor again. Oh, actually, before I open it up, I'm sorry, I want to read Nona's chat over there. In the indigenous world, the eating and use of animals is done with a blessing and respect for the creature in gratitude and taking only when there are enough animals and only for exactly what we need. Very different to respect animals and integrate them into our culture than to eat meat from factory farms. We are part of the natural world, not separate from it. I well known, I couldn't agree more with that. I thank you for flagging that. And, um, and just as I embrace a religious pluralism, um, in these calls around our different religious backgrounds and, um, and a moral pluralism as well. Here as well, while, while I make it no secret that I think veganism is the ideal, we embrace the reality that many people eat meat. And so I think this is a good framework you're sharing here, that if people are going to choose to uh, eat an animal, 
then then we might think about how we're going to incorporate a blessing of gratitude, how we're going to buy from sources that might be slightly more humane, how we're going to integrate that animal into our culture, into the, into that we're, and embrace that we're a part of the natural world, not separate from it, as Jane Goodall famously says. So lots more to say there. Thank you for that profound point, Nona. Someone else. I have a, a comment about asceticism. So um, uh, my interpretation of, for instance, Christian or Catholic asceticism <laughs> is that you're punished for having pleasure. It becomes almost demonized, you know, in an right. extreme right. case. But in Judaism, you know, we sanctify and then we enjoy. We sanctify our food and we enjoy. You know, even the Thomas says we light candles to begin Shabbat, but we enjoy the pleasure of the light. And so it's part of our tradition. Um, so, which is not to say all the arguments are valid about uh, excessive materialism, et cetera, that gets down to values. But I think in the tradition, it is about sanctifying and then having the pleasure of whatever we may have in front of us. Beautiful, beautiful. I think that's, that, that a very strong Jewish philosophical case could be made for the approach you're advocating for, that rather than um, Judaism being uh, um, celebrating pleasure and rather than Judaism celebrating suffering, that rather the approach is um, pleasure, but pleasure through elevation and through sanctification. I think that's, that's, that's the way we think of um, food. That's the way we think of sex. That's the way we think of, of, of Shabbat in many ways and, and, and on and on. Um, and yet I think that um, there are many who are turned off by the idea of any sort of limitations and deprivation, right? Why should I not have um, food whenever I want, whatever I want? Why should I fast? Oh, fasting is uncomfortable. I don't want to do that. Or why should I not have all, any, every sexual pleasure I want? Or why should I not have all the wealth I want without any limitations? And so I think one channel is about sanctification, um, uh, right? And, and one channel is about limitation. And limitation, I think, doesn't have to be about suffering. Limitation can also be, like you're saying, about elevation towards channeling what is what is ultimately good. Think about exercise. I mean, exercise, if it's done right, is not supposed to feel good. Yes, there are hormones released, which are supposed to be are be pleasurable, right? But pleasure supposed, uh, exercise is supposed to be pushing oneself beyond one's comfort zone in the interest of elevating one's body as a vehicle to serving God. And so, um, um, or, or, you know, uh, think about think about the, the, the curses of the Garden of Eden, two of which are man is going to work the field and woman is going to give birth. Um, that could be interpreted as a curse. Woman is going to suffer through birth, uh, through labor, um, and man is going to suffer in the fields. And of course, um, there's a lot to say about that. But many have described those as painful, but not suffering. Labor is painful, but also... Um, profound. Um, working is painful, but also profound. Um, and so um, even suffering can be elevated, can be elevated. Uh, Andrea writes over there also, limitation could mean accepting boundaries spiritually and socially. Yeah, thank you for that. Shmuley, I'm bothered by the word humility because um, my concept of humility is maybe kind of a false sense of oh I'm so good I'm doing this how do we define true humility 
Great. So thank you for that, Eileen. Anyone want to take a stab at that before I do? What does humility mean to you? Um, I have I plenty of thoughts, a, but I'd love to hear from someone. Uh, it's, Good. It's, a, it's a recognition that many of, of my personal accomplishments are are, right. are built on other uh, other people, my parents, my friends, people who have pushed me up and not taking all the credit for what I do, but recognizing that it's, you know, a lot of what I do is based on, I guess the modern, the modern term would be privilege or circumstance, and which is not to say I can't take any, any pride in my accomplishments, but that, that recognition of, of where they come from, which is not entirely my own talent or my own effort. Um, I would also say um, it, the so obvious point that, here, uh, clearly, a... sorry, oh, no, no, I think you're unstable. Uh, is it I'm unstable? Or, uh, uh, no, no, you want to try again? Oh, sure. Can you hear me? Yeah, now we can, yeah. Okay. Um, I would say that in, in Musar, what resonated with me about humility was the idea that you only take up the space that's appropriate for you to take up. Um, as a person who um, order is not my um, strength, I had to really apply that to um, looking at the arrogance of thinking that whatever space is around me, I have the right to fill it up. And I think that the idea that um, I have a right to anything I want because I want it I get to fly anywhere in the world I want to because I can afford it. I get to eat whatever I want because I can afford it. There's a tremendous arrogance in that to me. And so the idea of, of just using what, you know, what, what do I need to, to survive? What do I need? Um, what's appropriate? If I've, if I've done something, I should take enough of credit for it in the sense of, of being grateful that I've I've done something that's that's benefit noticing that it was a good thing to do, um, but not not to um, not to um, inflate it beyond what um, what it is, but not to not take credit for something you've done because you have a, also the responsibility to use the gifts you have to improve the world to make a difference in the world. So, being too humble, too much humility certainly has its own downside as well, which right. I think. As women, I think that, I mean, for me, that really resonated as a woman because we're really, I was very socialized to not, not take credit for things, just, you know, you, not to um, mm -hmm. inflate my sense or not to, not to be noticed. But. Beautiful. Thank Andrea, go off, please. That's really a good point. But when uh, Eileen raised the question, what immediately came to my mind, you know, in the other da on um, Yom Kippur, when the high priest calling the goal goes into the Holy of Holies and prostrates. Many of us in our shul, we get down and prostrate. And it's an incredible experience because you're basically saying, here I am. <laughs> I'm not in control. I'm yep. face to face with the mystery, the unfathomable. And that's like the ultimate. And even those of us that study yoga, when you do the child's pose, you're like down there. So it's like a physical manifestation of that, you know, um, but I also like what Noam is saying too, as far as our socialization of women, that's very appropriate. Yeah, I love this. Um, I wanna hear from more people, but just to bring together a few ideas that have been shared here. First, um, Avi's point around, um, around understanding uh, privilege um, and, uh, and what Eileen wrote over there about white privilege as well. And, and I think here we can, my view is that we should not be ashamed of privilege 
embrace humility around privilege. That's to say, um, white privilege, one not need to be ashamed of being white. Being male privilege, one not need to be ashamed of being male. Having an abled body, one not need to be ashamed of their body because it uh, because of abilities of one's body. Um, one who is wealthy will not be ashamed of their wealth, assuming they didn't oppress people to accumulate that wealth, but rather each form of privilege, citizenship, go, you know, the list goes on and on. With each form of privilege, um, it inspires a humility that I um, um, am not fully responsible for me having what I have. And that privilege gives me a responsibility. So that's building off of Avi's great point there, and then building off of um, Nona's great point about taking up no more and no less space, that we should take up our right space in the world, but no more, no less. And here, the, 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 gates, at the, the gates of heaven question for me is always, um, did we take more from the world than we gave? Did I take more from the world or give more? And once we realize our privilege, how much we've taken from the world, um, of food, of resources, how much damage we've created into the world by our carbon footprint and, and, the, and, and the like, how much do I have to pay forward to compensate for how much I've taken or how much damage I've done? That's also humility of realizing I need to make this, leave this world better than I found it. And then to go to Andrea's great point about not being in control. This is the way I understand a belief in God, that the humility of saying I'm not in control. Right, that I am ultimately not the one, and you know, and to be sure, it doesn't need theism to, to go to that approach. One can also realize they're not in control without God, but I think that's the most profound manifestation. That prostration speaks so deeply to me of what you talked about there, and uh, and here I do want to say also personally, then I'll open it up for more thoughts on this. Is in our last five minutes, is <clears throat> that I also embrace what some would describe as a less healthy form of humility. I do think that humility should be about a high sense of self-esteem, a sense of self-worth, but also a responsibility. Um, but also, I do think that what I find powerful is to meditate that we are nothing. We are nothing, right? We are dust and ashes. We came from dust and ashes. We're going to return to dust and ashes. We, yes, it's that old saying, put the note in one pocket that the world was created for us, the note in the other pocket, we are, no, we are nothing, dust and ashes. We can hold on to both truths. But one of those truths is still, we are nothing, right? No one is going to remember us 100 years after our life. No one's going to care about us after 20 years after we are dead. Maybe our name exists somewhere, but nobody really cares anymore. They're living their own life. And that profound realization that we are nothing does not need to lead us towards cynicism and hedonism, that we're nothing so eat, drink, and be merry, or we're nothing so nothing matters, but the opposite, a deep spiritual impermanency, right, of realizing that part of the truth of us being nothing means that it's not about us. Our service in the world is about transcending self towards, towards other. We have time for another, uh, maybe one last comment or question. Molly? Yes. Hi, Cheryl. It's okay. I didn't know if I was muted. Anyway, um, could could humility also be an unconscious kind of um, an unconscious kind of perception where you don't you do good because inside you know that doing good is the right thing to do, or you feel you feel like this is what you need to do to repair the world, to go back to your initial survey. Um, 
and and really not even recognizing well this is this is not about you know you don't recognize it this is not about me and you know i humbly am giving my money i am humbly giving my, my time i'm humbly giving my you know whatever wisdom that you might have to contribute to a particular thing but not even like it, it would be like a kind of a self-realization that you're not real you're unconsciously doing something and so you're being humble, but not really, you know, congealing that in your mind. Mm. So I want to make sure I understand that better, Cheryl. You're saying that there's something that's unconscious, that is a deep motive um, about about giving, um, that it, that represents kind of a core humility in a person. Is that what you're saying? Uh, yeah, without really without really saying, you know, I I I'm thank I'm grateful for my. I'm humble and I'm humbled by and grateful for my ability to be able to do this. Not saying that it's just, you know, an in, inherent part of, who, you know, who a person might be or, you know, what a person might believe in, but yeah. not necessarily defining that in the, you know, in a conscious matter. Oh yeah. That's great. That's great. Yeah. Like I know people who literally um, have no uh, part of their daily agenda to be of service to others. They literally just think, um, and they're not aware of it being selfish, but they're just, they're just hardwired from their childhood or from their nature to just kind of do things for themselves. Um, and then I know people that, like you're talking about, were unconsciously, it's just kind of built into who they are. They're not trying to be humble or stating it as being humble, that they are just naturally inclined towards wanting to be helpful, to be of service, to be giving. Uh, it's just like their different inclination. And here I think we can distinguish between two different forms of humility. One, which has to do with kind of a motive, a motive that emerges from one's depths, and the other, which is a process, that regardless of what my motive for why I do something, the way I'm going to do it is do it humbly. I'm going to do this humbly. So, and someone might have one of the two. They might say, oh, I'm doing this service. It's really about me. It's not about them, but I'm going to try to do it humbly. And someone else might have a humble motive. And yet the way they do it is, is opposite. Of course, even better if we can bring both into play. This is one of the areas where I think Jewish values can really shape a discourse because you don't look at the public, the public discourse today and think, wow, this is really humble. You read Twitter and be like, wow, everyone on Twitter is so humble. You know, they don't have anything figured out. They're, they're really unsure about truth. Actually, if you want Twitter followers, you scream about your certainty, right? If you want to be a politician and make it, you scream how, how certain you are about what's exactly true. No humility at all because it's righteous indignation, right? And so thank you for that. And so friends, I give everyone the bracha that we should continue um, putting salt into the world um, and desalting. We want to desalt um, and we want to salt um, in order to realize that we need transformation in the world. We need transformation of self and a deep part of that transformation is humility. To realize that humility is what enables people to come together. You can't have a life partner without humility. You can't be a parent without humility. You can't be a part of a team in the workplace without humility, right? You can't build a movement without humility. We can't do any of it. And it's not just instrumental, but the humility is actually what enables us to find God by realizing that I need gratitude in the world. I need relationships in the world. It's not all about me. I need to open my heart and be vulnerable. And that vulnerability is a humility to realize how desperately we are dependent upon one another.
Have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thank you.